We welcome back this morning one of our weary travelers. Josh is home from the service. Good to have you back with us, Josh. So make Josh feel welcome. <laughs> we have several servicemen in the fellowship. I wish I could speak well of all of them like I do you, Josh. <laughs> Genesis chapter 48. <laughs> now that I have offended half the fellowship. <laughs> uh, for a young child to keep a secret, it's impossible. You ever play hide and seek with uh, a small child, one of your grandchildren perhaps? They want you to find them. They, they don't want to be hidden. They want you to find them. Uh, you never tell a small child that you've got their mother a Christmas or a birthday present. They will say something like, Daddy told me not to tell you that he got you a necklace because it's a surprise. And in our story of Joseph, his brothers, he has hid, hidden his identity from them. He has remained anonymous, and that has to be difficult for Joseph. And he's had several encounters where he's tested his brothers. And finally, Joseph can restrain himself no longer. And Joseph, remember, he is a man of great patience. So let's look at Genesis chapter 45, and we'll just look at the first eight verses there. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptian and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed. At his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So, so now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph has made everyone go out of the room out of his presence except for his brothers. He wants to be alone with his brothers now and he makes himself known to them. And he openly weeps. He weeps so hard, you might say, that Pharaoh hears of it. Pharaoh might have been a neighbor. Maybe he heard him weeping. Who knows? But there's a lot of speculation in uh in commentary circles about how Je Joseph made himself known to his brothers. 
We don't know for sure, but we know he put out everybody out of the house except for his brothers. And Joseph now speaks to them privately. And Joseph asks his brothers while he's weeping, is father still alive? And he says, come near me and tell me. But his brothers, they're afraid. They're frightened of Joseph. They're, it even indicates they're perhaps terrified of him. And Joseph says, come on, come near me. Joseph is telling his brothers to come near him. And this indicates that they are probably feigning, falling back. They're cringing in fear of what Joseph may do to them. For these brothers, in their minds, in their heads, Joseph is dead. And now here's this man standing before them saying, Come near me, I'm your brother. And they have trouble accepting Joseph, uh, that he's alive. And then they quickly remember, Hey, we sold him into slavery. And this man that they're afraid of, holds their very life within his hand. When Joseph tested his brothers, he showed himself to be a, a, a wise man, uh, a man of power, a man of authority, and, uh, you know, and he reminded them that their lives were in his hands, and now they're very afraid. And <clears throat> when we face fears or face the fact that we have been completely wrong in our opinion or in our viewpoint of something, that's a great wake-up call for us. Uh, and I think we go through that. God will take us through when we prejudge somebody. I never prejudge somebody that God doesn't take me and show me I was wrong. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, it can be sobering, to say the least, when we realize that we have completely misjudged someone or that our thinking has been completely opposite of what God would have us to be thinking. There's a conversion in the scriptures about Paul, and he's a prime example of a man who was headed in a complete, excuse me, completely wrong direction. So let's take a look at how Jesus made himself known, how Jesus revealed himself to Paul when, uh, when he converted him on the Damascus road. Saul, he was a good Jew. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee of the strictest order. He, he was a strict Jewish leader. He enjoyed the right of Roman citizenship, which was a big thing in his day. And as a young man, Saul learned the trade of tent making. Now, it was a common practice that you would train your sons. Any Jewish boy grew up knowing a trade. Because when things got rough, you could always fall back on your trade. And Paul does. We find him making tents on some of his missionary journeys. But at the age of 13, Saul, and I'll use Saul and Paul interchangeably here, 
he went to Jerusalem to study under the esteemed Gamaliel. And Saul comes on the biblical scene in the book of Acts at the death of Stephen, uh, who was stoned to death, Stephen being a martyr. And those who stoned Stephen laid their garments at the feet of this young Jewish rabbi, Saul. And thus we have a life of persecution of Saul towards Christians, or what they call those of the way. Saul was known to go and enter houses, uh, breaking down the door and taking captive Christians out of a house, and he would cast them into prison. And he became greatly feared by the Christian population of that day, which was a new movement. Uh, They called it the way. And in Paul's own words, he says, I persecuted this way to the death, bringing, binding, and putting both men and women into prison. And when they were being put to death, he even oversaw some of them to be put to death. I cast my vote against them. Paul admits to having caused many to blaspheme. And so Saul, a bitter man, he's vindictive against Christians. And he even goes to the high priest and he gets letters that will allow him to pursue and persecute Christians. And we pick up Paul's story while he is traveling to the synagogues of Damascus. So if you would turn to Acts chapter 9 and we'll read... We'll read nine verses, the first nine verses of Acts chapter 9. It's, it's worth us looking at. Acts 9, <clears throat> 1 through 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked letters from him to synagogues of Damascus, thought it, so that it... If he found any who were of the way, whether man or woman, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And he journeyed, and as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Quite a conversion. Saul, he hears a voice, and this voice sounds like God. Because it is God. <laughs> I think that's pretty So uh, we don't know what God sounds like, but in the movies they always make him a, a very robust baritone. But anyway, Jesus is asking Saul a question. 
Jesus asked Saul, as he's lying on the ground, having been knocked to the ground by the light of Jesus. That's a strong light, by the way. A light that will knock you to the ground is definitely bright. And here's Jesus' questions for Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, in Saul's mind, he is simply being a good Jewish elder. He's defending the faith. And the only people, the only persons that Saul is persecuting is the followers of Jesus. So that question is ringing bells in, in Paul's head. So the first thing that comes to his mind is, who are you, Lord? The bright light that has knocked Saul to the ground and the heavenly voice that now speaks to him requires Saul to answer or really causes him to ask, who are you, Lord? And I think Saul knew who it was before he asked. And Jesus answered Saul, and I think Jesus wanted Saul to ask who he is. And Jesus answers Saul, and it's straightforward. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Excuse me. It's interesting for us to notice that Jesus totally identifies with any of his followers who are being persecuted. You cannot suffer alone for Jesus. He is there with you. I'm very glad that Jesus did not say, why are you persecuting my disciples? There's a big difference. It's comforting for us to know we never go through trials or tribulations or persecutions alone. And now the question for Saul. God has revealed himself to Saul for a reason. Saul, he's trembling, he's astonished, and his question is simple and straightforward, and it's what do you want me to do? With any great truth, any great revelation from God, our response should be, what do you want me to do with this information? In Saul's conversion, Saul sees, he hears, and Jesus knows, and Saul knows that he's obligated to this Jesus that he's been persecuting. Saul comes to an instant place of making Jesus Lord. What happens in a moment for Saul, it can take a lifetime for for some of us believers. Uh, There are many many Christians who receive Jesus as Savior. But there are not quite as many who make him Lord. 
And that can be a lifelong process for a lot of believers, just to make Jesus Lord. It happens instantly with Paul. Who are you? And then what do you want me to do, Lord? Paul's entire Jewish career, his entire adult life, has been centered in the Jewish faith. And in a moment, in a moment on that road, Paul has gone from persecuting Jesus to serving him. My life has completely changed. Paul was completely wrong in who he opposed. He opposed Jesus. Was Paul sincere? As sincere as you can be. But he was completely wrong. Completely opposed to Christ. But in a moment of time, Jesus takes Paul, a persecutor of himself, one that has been breathing threats against his disciples, and he takes this radical Saul and he makes him one of his. What a beautiful story. And this is a microcosm of what happens to any person that is born again. We go from opposing God the moment we're born again to serving God. This change of heart, this change of a life is proof that Jesus is God, for only God can change a life like that. You want proof of God? Look at changed lives. Look at your own life, how you were before and how you are now. <clears throat> for only Jesus can take a person, only Jesus can take a nation from unbelieving to believing. You ever try to convince somebody that they're wrong in something? It's not an easy task. It's a difficult thing. Only our Lord can take somebody and do a complete change, a complete metaphor in their life instantly. It didn't take Paul any amount of time to realize, I'm persecuting Jesus. What do you want me to do, Jesus? He goes from persecuting to serving in a heartbeat. There is a future change coming for an entire nation. As a people, Israel rejects Jesus as Messiah. There still remains a hostility towards Jesus within the Jewish people, within the Jewish nation, that goes all the way back to his crucifixion. You remember at his crucifixion, at his trial with Pilate, they cry out, crucify him. Uh, so turn with me to Matthew. We'll read about it real quickly here. Matthew 27, and we'll look at 11 through 26, and uh, we'll just read some verses here quickly. Matthew 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. 
Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. <clears throat> now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they handed him over because of envy. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, <coughs> Excuse me again. Have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And the people answered and said, here's the part, his blood be upon us and upon our children. And then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. It is a well-documented fact that the Jewish leader, the chief priests and elders, persuaded the people to cry out for Jesus to be crucified. We hear Pilate say, why? What evil has he done? But the people cry out all the more, crucify him. I read that passage to make this point. Now I want you to fast forward in your mind to the end of the age. Not the rapture of the church, but when Christ himself returns. Uh, I'll read you a couple verses out of Revelation 1, uh, verses 7 8. Behold, he is coming in the clouds, and ever I will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus returns with the clouds. All the people of the earth see him, including those, his own people, that pierced him. And they will mourn because they didn't recognize Jesus as God when he came the first time 2,000 years ago. Then we have a scripture in Zechariah. In Zechariah 12, 11, or 10 and 11, it says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me, speaking of Jesus, whom they pierce. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him 
as one who grieves of a firstborn. In that day there should be a great mourning in Jerusalem. Future tense, the entire nation of Israel, the Jewish people, God's chosen people, will mourn over Jesus when he returns knowing that they rejected him. They will mourn for the one that they crucified, the one they pierced. And when the Apostle Paul realized that he was persecuting Jesus, on the road to Damascus, he cried out, Who are you, Lord? Great sorrow, great remorse overcome Paul. And Paul goes from persecuting to becoming a Christian. Paul is converted by the one he persecuted. And now we have Israel, an entire nation, who will mourn with great sorrow when they see Jesus on his return, knowing they have rejected their Messiah. But here's the good part. God is not through with his people. And God will save many of Israel, yet future. <coughs> so how does that relate to Joseph and his brothers? Well, in that story, they go through great sorrow, great fear, and regret as they stand before Joseph, who is now governor of Egypt. These brothers of Joseph, they've experienced fear, they've experienced sorrow, same kind of things that Paul went through, and it's extremely humbling when you're completely wrong about something you base your life upon. Paul was sorrowful. He regretted his persecution of the church the rest of his years. The brothers of Joseph, now they stand before Joseph. They're completely sorrowful. They're in fear. And Israel will have sorrow and remorse when they see Jesus returned, the one whom they pierced. When they realize how wrong they have been. For a person to be born again, you have to understand how completely and wrong you have been to oppose Christ. That's part of it. That's part of the the repentance, how we oppose the one who died for us. Now, I understand that I'm talking to a room full of believers, okay? And most of you, I, I'm sure, have been born again. But I want to urge you to take that next step that the Apostle Paul took. His second part of the question, and that is, what would you have me do, Lord? Have you come to that place? That is called surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That is a reasonable question. What would you have me do, Lord? He's done so much for us. 
So let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. But I urge you, settle that issue. What would you have me do, Lord? Amen. Amen. Father God, we can go for years without asking that question. We can assume upon your grace <clears throat> for long periods of time without ever crossing that point where we say, okay, you've shown me grace, now what do you want of me? Lord, I pray that each believer here would make you Lord. That they would settle that issue between yourself and themselves, just like Paul's did. Paul did it instantly, Lord, and it makes us appreciate Paul. But he said, what would you have me do, Lord? And you showed Paul all the things that he had to suffer for your namesake. Lord, we don't know if you have suffering ahead for us. We don't know if you have great things for us. But we do know this, that you will always be with us. We know that we can't go through any suffering, any trial, any persecution without you being there with us. And so we thank you for that. Thank you for never leaving us, nor forsaking us. And so, Lord, as one who has been born again, I say to you, what would you have me do, Lord? And then give me that courage that I need, that faith that I will need, to obey you when you do show me and when you show these, your people, what you have for them. We don't want to be Christians in word only. We want to be Christians in deed. So help us, Lord, is our prayer. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.